This is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins you were sold. Because of your transgressions your mother was sent away. When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to deliver you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? By a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into a desert. Their fish rot for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with darkness and make sackcloth its covering. Paul Hansen is a scholar working with Isaiah, and he says, self-deception is a bitter enemy of wholesome relationships, and it is the most elusive of life's evils with which to cope. In marriage, for example, it leads one partner to assert that the fault lies exclusively with the other. An impenetrable wall is constructed that silences honest communication. Self-deception allows the one to wallow in self-pity while the other languishes in despair. A relationship dies, bringing the happiness of two human beings with it. Self-deception is a bitter enemy of wholesome relationships. The way that I see this playing out in my own life is in the classroom. I am privileged to be a high school Bible teacher, and in that privilege, I get to interact with a lot of students. One of the things that I've seen over the past few years is this please put that book away. It's not chemistry. This is Bible class. But I need to study for this test. It's coming up next period. I can't, I've got to do it. You just need to chill out. I got to do what I got to do. Or this, um, you in the back, you need to stop talking, please. Who, me? It wasn't me. It was that person. It wasn't me talking. It was this person talking to me. I'm fine. That person. Or this, what are you playing with there? Is that your cell phone? No, that's not my cell phone. This is my, uh, calculator that I'm using to, or it's, it's on airplane mode. See, it's not that big of a deal. It's, it's, it's you know, it's whatever. Self-deception is evident in the blame shifting of students. It's evident in the, who, me? Not me. I'm squeaky clean. It's that person. It's the direction not from this person to that person over there. I also see this evident. Now, that's, 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 that's kind of on them. I'm deflecting on them. I'll give you an example of how self-deception works in my own home. And this will give you a window into how messed up of a person I am. And I'm sorry if that breaks any sort of images that you have about me in your mind and how pristine I am. Still very well built. We can hold on to that, but this might shatter some of the things here. In the home, um, a few months ago, this was the only example that was coming to my mind, although there are many. I bet Kate can give you a lot more. I opened the freezer door. And you know how sometimes you open the freezer door, some contents have shifted, and something might slide out at you like a rogue missile. This happened to be, I believe it was a two-pound bag of ground beef, which had it hit my foot would have hurt real bad, and other levels of unholiness might have proceeded from my being. However, as the meat was falling, I see this unfolding, and as it hits the floor, this is what my thought process is. Kate, why did you put that meat there? Right? Yes, Brooka, that is the exact remark that I would love to hear. It's, it's not me. I would never put meat in a vulnerable position that might fall out of the freezer and injure some unknown hungry person, you know? It's, it's, Kate, what are you doing? And I see how this plays out a lot of times. It's blame shifting where I can't 
do what I expect my students to do when I bust them on cell phone use and just say, yes, sir, here's my cell phone, I'm sorry. I oftentimes will shift the blame in the house Kate's way. I see this playing out not just in the home with Kate and I's relationship, but just in in lives in general. Another one of my not-so-good moments is when I'm behind the wheel of my sweet black base model Honda Fit 5-speed. Yeah, just soak that in, all of those adjectives. It's, it's a thing of beauty. Plastic rims, that's what you want. I love that car, though. It's not made for speed. It's barely made for comfort. But I love driving it, and I'm in it quite a bit. When I'm on the road, I never make mistakes. It's the guy from New Jersey that makes the mistakes, or the person from Pennsylvania. Sorry to both of the people that made it inhabit those places. (laughs) Just lost some folks. My bad. Stay with me. It's always their fault. Sometimes my my biggest pet peeve is if somebody's slowing down and they're not putting on their turn signal and I'll just feel the rage, you know, like, what's wrong with you? I got places to be. Put your turn signal on, you person, you know? Or this one, which is very common in our area. It's if you're making a left-hand turn, of course, if you're driving a regular-sized car, you need to veer off to the right and then bring it back to the left. Of course you have to do that, right? So that I can't go around you like the law allows me to do. It's in the lane and then we go, and I'm just kind of like fuming. What are you doing? It's like I'm the good driver, you're the terrible driver. Sometimes that might actually make sense, but sometimes... That doesn't make sense, as I've caught myself sometimes slowing down without a turn signal on or doing some of the things that I accuse other people of doing. Self-deception is something that ruins relationships because we spend most of our time shifting blame and not allowing ourselves to say, yeah, I messed up there. In the analogy that was built from Paul Hansen, it was in marriage, and that blame shifting just allows that one person to wallow in their own self-pity and the other person just to feel the weight of guilt and shame, which ultimately leads to pretty big tear in that relationship. The things that we think about ourselves impact these relationships. In Isaiah 51 through 3, we see another example of self-deception, and namely this is Israel saying, God, you did this. Not us, not me, not these people, you did this. How dare you? The self-deception in this text is one of Israel not being able to own their own guilt, to own their own shortcomings in this particular text. And they say, God, you did this because early on in the text, in Genesis chapter 12, we see Abraham receiving certain promises, promises that built the foundation of Israel as a people, promises that God would be with them, that he would be their God, he would, that they would be his people, he would give them land, he would give them offspring, he would make nations to come from them, and ultimately the most beautiful one that impacts us, that the whole world would be blessed through this ragtag group of misfits known as Israel. They had all these promises, but as we've seen in Isaiah 40 through 55, their context is one of exile. They've been removed from the land. They have no more ties to the land. Their temple has been destroyed. Their relationship with God seems to be severed. They're questioning the relationship. They're questioning if God is still invested in them as a people. And they've been able to see these promises and Israel and how those two things don't really go together. Yeah, that was great saying all this stuff, but now the way our circumstances and the way that we live, they don't really 
match up to that. Now what? And they've kind of brought about the question of who's to blame for Israel's current situation. And that's what's underlying Isaiah 50, 1 through 3. It says this, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Now the background to this is all throughout Isaiah 40 through 55. We've seen silences from Israel. Like there's an assumed argument here that we aren't privy to. It's just God showing up saying, where is your mother's certificate of divorce? And the underlying implication is, God, you have left us. You have divorced us. You have sold us into slavery. You have done this. We don't hear Israel saying that, but every hint throughout these first 10 chapters that we've been looking at would lead us to that place. Remember in Isaiah 40, I believe in verse 27, where they say, God has no regard for my rights. He has no thought for, for me or for us. That's the kind of thoughts that are underlying this text. And God is, in a sense, arguing with Israel. We see this courtroom scene throughout Isaiah 40 through 55. Usually it's Yahweh or the God of Israel arguing with other rival gods, the gods of Babylon. Remember, this is Israel in captivity, in exile, in a foreign land, looking around, seeing all of the statues, all of the idols, all of the false gods, and wondering if they can be better than the God they used to serve or be better than the God that they're trying to serve now. So we've seen God like arguing against these other rival gods and we also see in this instance, God taking Israel to court. God asking Israel to bring about evidence and a witness of where they're at. And we've seen this before in Isaiah 42. It says, hear deaf ones and blind ones, look and see. Who is blind if not my servant and deaf like my messenger whom I send? Drop down to verse 20. You have seen many things. This is God talking to Israel. But you don't keep watch. With ears open, you don't hear. Which of you will listen to this, will pay attention and respond from now on? Who gave Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Wasn't it the Lord, the one we sinned against? So here this is God in a courtroom scene saying, Israel, you have sinned. You have no case to be made at all. In Isaiah 43, a similar thing happens. It says, but you didn't call out to me, Jacob. You were tired of me, Israel. You didn't bring me lambs for your entirely burned offering. You didn't honor me with your sacrifices. I didn't make you worship with offerings. I didn't weary you with frankincense. You didn't buy spices for me with your money or satisfy me with the fat of your sacrifices. Instead, you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your evil actions. All of the sacrifice, all of the prayers, all of the songs were nothing. And God says, you've burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your evil actions. In the courtroom scene, Israel has no case to be made. He says here in verse 26, summon me and let's go to trial together. You tell your story so that you might be vindicated, but you can't be vindicated because you're at fault. Stop shifting the blame. Stop saying that your phone was on airplane mode. There's no case for Israel to be made here. So God is saying, This is my defense. You think that I've abandoned you, but where is your mother's certificate of divorce and to whom did I sell you? He's saying, in a sense, there is no certificate of divorce. There are no creditors. I didn't get rid of you like that. We've seen in Deuteronomy chapter 24, there's rules for marriage relationships. In the beginning here, it says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, and again, understand this is a very 
ancient and culturally contextual set of verses here. But if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her away from his house, and if after she leaves his house and she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, she can't go back and marry the first guy again. We have rules about this kind of stuff where in the Old Testament there was such a thing as a certificate of divorce and God's saying, I didn't write one of those. I didn't get rid of you like that. There were no creditors. Also in the ancient Near East, if you had bills to pay, this sounds so foreign to us, but just kind of soak it up. If you as a family have bills to pay, there's ways that you go about that. And sometimes that's giving up your family to indentured servitude, to working for someone else. Don't think of it like slavery in America, but think of it like you send people to go make a wage and pay back the debts that you owe. And God's here saying, I didn't sell you like that don't owe anybody anything. I didn't get rid of you like that. I haven't severed this relationship. Instead, he comes back and says, it's because of your sins that you were sold, because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away. So in a sense, God's saying it's not my fault, but there's also this tension here because he's saying, I didn't send you away or divorce you, and I didn't give you to a creditor but you were sold and you were given away because of your sins. So there's this tension here where God's not the one doing it, but Israel has done it themselves. The end result is they're still in exile. They're still divorced from this relationship. They're still not where they once were, and things have changed. Israel's self-deception in this text is challenged, where they can no longer say, you did it. It's like the complete opposite of that classic line from George Costanza, where he says, It's not me, Israel, it's you. God's saying, it's not me, it's you. Your sinfulness, the things that you did, I kept warning you over and over and over and over and over and you wouldn't listen. Which leads to this very, very deep question that we're not really equipped to deal with tonight in the confines of this sermon, but I want to at least bring some things up for consideration. Does it still work this way? Are we still punished for our sins? Because what's happening in this text is Israel has forsaken God and God has given them over to Babylon, removed them from the land, allowed their temples to be destroyed, allowed them to leave from this promise, uh, this place where God had them. The relationship was kind of severed. And it begs the question, are we still punished for our sins? Some of us walk through really difficult things. We walk through parents getting divorced. We walk through physical sicknesses. We walk through debt. We walk through all sorts of these issues and we wonder oftentimes, is God putting us through these things to strengthen us or to build character? Sometimes we'll hear Christians go so far that God is the author of pretty much every despicable act that human beings can come up with. And we cling on to these verses like Romans 8, 28. God uses all these things for the good of those who love him and we really misapply them and say, it's okay what you're going through because God's gonna use it. It's okay that your parent has died or it's okay that your daughter has gone through this thing. It's okay all these things because God's gonna use that. And oftentimes that just doesn't sit well with us because it makes God the author of all these things that just don't seem to go with his character. And we wonder, are we being punished for sins? I had a conversation with somebody last week and they were wondering this very question. Are we being punished for the things that we've done wrong? 
Is my life not working out because I've made some bad choices? I have two texts that I want to look at here to maybe give us some hope. The first one is an Old Testament text. This is where God is revealing who he is and describing himself in very full language. It says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. I forget if I talked about this in here, if this was a classroom talk, but that verb for forgiving is nasa. It means carry. It's not just he's forgiving it and washing it away. He's taking wrongdoing and wickedness and rebellion and sin and he's owning it. He's putting it on his back and saying, I'm going to carry your junk. Israel, all the stuff that you do to fracture this relationship, I'm going to put it in my backpack and I'm going to carry it around because I care about you too much. He's forgiving or he's carrying wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Here's the, the twist, and this is tough for a 21st century American audience to be okay with but it says yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation what i want you to see here is the difference between these descriptions in the first one god is compassionate he's gracious he's slow to anger he's abounding in love maintaining love to thousands maintaining love to thousands of generations over and over and over he's slow he's patient he's loving He's kind, he's good, he's wise to thousands of generations. The dominant characteristic in this text is love and patience. But he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. See the play there between the thousands of generations and then the third and fourth generation. It's like God is loving, 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 but at some point there's got to be a payment for this sin. Israel was rebellious And God was loving and loving and loving, slow to anger until finally he said, you guys aren't getting it and this is the only thing that might get your attention. The dominant characteristic here is love, but he is just in the sense that he's punishing sin and calling a spade a spade. The second text that I was reminded of as I was thinking through this stuff is in John 9. This is Jesus. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? You see, the underlying thought and the time was anything that was wrong with somebody was due to the sins of either that person themselves or the parents. It's like there was this whole retribution theology where good leads to good and bad ultimately leads to bad. So somebody that's blind or has a physical ailment, the thought process for a first century Jew was who screwed up? because something had to cause this. But what happens here, Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in him. Not everything that we go through is a judgment. Not every ailment, not every bad circumstance, not every misfortune is God saying, deal with that. Not everything is is God saying your sins is bringing this about. Sometimes good people go through really difficult stuff. We're seeing that right now in the life of this community. What's interesting about this is Jesus frames it by saying they didn't sin. This has happened so that the glory of God can be shown through this person. If we could get personal for just two seconds, and perhaps this is inappropriate, I see the glory of God in Ryan Twilley's life because I see the testimony that he 
lives out every day because I hear him say things like, I just want to suffer well for the gospel because I hear him say he can do whatever he wants. It's not my life. He can take it if he needs to. I mean, I hear him put things in this context of not woe is me, not self-deception, not deflecting, not anger, not being ticked. It's God can use me even in this. Not everything that we go through is a judgment and not everything that we go through is that angry, vindictive God in the sky saying, my plan is working perfectly because this person is suffering. The picture that the Bible paints of God is not that at all. It's God being loving and patient and kind. He mourns with those who mourns. He weeps with those who weep. And he is joyous with those who are experiencing joy. He carries our wrongdoing. I think he also carries all of the good stuff that makes him a proud dad to say, these are my kids. Look how this guy is walking through this time. Not being one of who's been deceived, but one who's owning it and saying, I can carry a little bit too. This text, we see Israel just being so obstinate, saying, God, you've brought this on us. And he says, no, you've brought this on yourself. I'm not like that. I don't want to be like that. The primary characteristic is love, but there is this just aspect to God, which we don't want to talk about. There's good news for us, and we'll get there in a moment. In this text, even there's good news too, because it says, because of your sins you were sold, because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away. In verse two, when I came, why was there no one there? When I called, why was there no one to answer? The implication is he's still showing up in the midst of all of this judgment and sin. He still has a heart for his people. Even though Israel was judged, they're not completely abandoned and Yahweh still wants to maintain a relationship with them. He's not writing the certificate of divorce. He's not selling them to the creditors because he still has work to be done with them. He still has a relationship that he cares about and is concerned about. I think that's so true even for us right now. Regardless of what you're walking through and believe me when I say, I can't fathom some of the things that you guys are walking through. He's not done yet. He hasn't sold you off to someone. He hasn't written you a certificate of divorce. He still cares about you and he's still fighting for that relationship. He's still showing up. The real question is, why is Israel so unresponsive to his attempts? Why do they keep saying, you don't care about me, you have no concern for my right or my mishpat, my cause? Why why do they not see when he shows up and turn and restore the relationship themselves. Finally, we see here towards the end of this verse, God talking about his power. Was my arm too short to deliver you? No. Do I lack the strength to rescue you? No, because by a mere rebuke, I dry up the sea, I turn rivers into a desert. Here, he could be referencing the, uh, the exodus, could be referencing the Red Sea crossing. He could just be referencing the fact that he can do whatever he wants to do. I clothe the heavens with darkness and make sackcloth its covering. God has power to do whatever it is that he wants to do. That's why we beg him to do certain things. That's why we beg him for healing. That's why we beg him for restoration. That's why we beg him to show up when it seems as though he hasn't shown up. He can dry up the sea if he wants to. For many of us, we've written that off. I want to just kind of focus in on, I believe, five points here to conclude. The first one is, have we deceived ourselves? Are we still in the mode of deflecting our own junk onto other people, making excuses for who we are? Some of us have walked through really difficult things. I get that. Some of us are entitled to be a little bit angry, 
a little bit hurt, a little bit jaded. But I think there's also a time to walk past that into a new level of trust and commitment. Man, it's easier said than done. I get that. But I don't think that that's what we've been created for. Have we deceived ourselves in deflecting our own junk onto other people? Have we blamed God for what he hasn't done? Have we blamed God when things go wrong when he's not the one doing it? My dad often says God gets blamed for a lot of things that he doesn't do. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I think a lot of times Christians are the ones that are heaping up that blame, much like Israel in in exile saying, God, you did this. And he says, I didn't. I didn't. I'm weeping with you. Have we been unresponsive to restoration? How God keeps showing up and nobody was there to answer his call. How long have we been sitting there with just these walls built up where we don't want to hear from him anymore? Why are we not allowing ourselves to be responsive to the call of restoration, reconciliation, redemption, hope, life? I'm begging you, he's not done with you yet. Don't give up on him. Have we overlooked his love for his justice? Have we overlooked like that bit in Exodus 34 where it says God is loving to the thousands of generations, slow to anger, abounding in love. He carries our wrongdoing, our guilt, our sin. That's like he owns it for us. Yeah, he punishes. Yes, he's just. But his primary characteristic is one of love. And then finally, have we neglected his son? The whole thing that makes this sermon work in my mind is it's not the same as it was for Israel because Christ the son of God took on flesh lived a sinless life for us and paid for it at the cross the junk that we have has been carried and it has been paid in full in the beginning of of Isaiah 40 it says the time of your suffering or something to that effect is over because your sins have been paid for Regardless of what it is that we go through, I believe that gospel message is still very prevalent. Your sins have been paid for. The ones yesterday, the ones today, the ones tomorrow have been carried to the cross, have been carried to the tomb, and have been taken care of in the resurrection. I hope that as we see this stuff, we can come back to the gospel we can come back to Christ crucified and the hope and the life that is so embodied in that act. I know that you go through difficult things. Don't give up on God yet because he's not given up on you. And don't think as though the things that you have done can't be paid for because they already have. You haven't been divorced. You haven't been sold to the creditors. God is still fighting for that relationship, showing up, calling to you. Don't be unresponsive. For the Christians in the room, I mean, the same thing applies to us. We have these same walls that we build up, and I would encourage you to fight for hope, to fight for life, to fight for joy, to fight for redemption that's only found in Jesus. And then live that out so that people can see it. Even when we walk through the darkest of valleys, Live it out so that people can see it.